Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. Arguably the most famous person in history. Over two billion people claim to follow him. That's one third of the world's population. He's represented in art and literature more than any other figure. Time magazine called him the most influential person who has ever lived. But who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Mm. Uh, uh, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, I believe he was a person. Um, he's the son of God. I don't believe Jesus ever really existed. He's the son of God. If I have to answer that question, I would say God. Uh, he plays on the wing for Chelsea. If you read the Bible, I, I don't think I could believe in all of that. Everything. <laughs> you can be any, but for me, he's everything. Who is Jesus? To be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not super religious or anything, so, I mean, he, I guess he's a savior or something. <laughs> Personally, I think that Jesus was probably a really cool dude who lived a long time ago and gave great advice to people, and it snowballed from there. So tonight we're talking about who is Jesus. Thanks, Steve. And uh, to, to, to give you some background where I come from, uh, just so you, you know a bit of my testimony, a bit of my history, I come from a Christian home. I come from a Christian family, was born up uh, going to church, brought up believing in Jesus. But although I followed suit for most of my life and, and did the church thing and, and uh, said the right things, I believed in Jesus up here. It was the head knowledge, but I don't know if it's just more of a second-born thing, but I didn't always follow suit because I wanted to push back and try things for myself. And where I really had my very first crisis of faith was actually when, after a year of Bible college. I went to Bible college 2002 to 2003, and I thought I just failed my accounting program the year before at Mohawk. So I thought, hey, a bunch of friends are going to Bible college. Why not give that a shot? It'd be fun at least for a year. But what I wrestled with there was my own upbringing. Because you see, I, I knew the right things, but I didn't necessarily, I wasn't connected to them. I didn't truly believe them. And I saw other people living the exact same life as I was, but yet they were going into ministry. And I really wrestled with that because they were saying one thing and they were getting the good grades on the paper, but then they were living a completely different lifestyle. And it, it really rocked me. And I'm like, either pick one or the other. If you're going to preach one thing, then live that way. But if you're going to live a different way, then don't preach that. Just own up to it. 
And that was a challenge I kind of gave to myself, and I decided to live the opposite way. I decided to do things my own way, how I wanted to do them. I went back into accounting because that's where I thought the money was at. Uh, working for a family business, not necessarily there, but um, it wasn't until the New Year's of 2007 that I truly had an encounter with Jesus. And it was that night that the head knowledge that I had grown up knowing and understanding finally connected with my heart. And I had this wake-up call and this, this encounter with Jesus where he opened my eyes to the brokenness and the destructive rhythms that I was living. And he kind of called me to account and said, Kev, you have the ability to lead your friends toward me or away from me. And is this really what, what I'm asking from you? Is this really where you want to go? And I looked around, and I decided that night I needed to not only just accept these things blindly and say, okay, I'll believe whatever it is has been told to me, but I needed to actually learn how to get the tools necessary to discern what it was that I believed. And that took me out to Trinity Western in British Columbia, where I did a Christianity and culture degree at their university there, to, to figure out what it was that I truly believed and why I believed it. The good old, the Bible says it, I believe it, that's good enough for me. My dad, I can still picture him and hear him singing that line. That no longer worked for me, and I had to know more. And I think that's what excites me about digging into this tonight and going through the Alpha series, because what evidence is there for Christianity? You can't prove Christianity mathematically. You can't prove it scientifically. But science, of course, is very, very important. But science answers different questions to faith. Science answers the question, when and how did this world come into being? But what it can't answer is the question of who and why. What I mean by that is, I'll use this visual aid of a cookie. So I've got a cookie. It's a pretty good cookie. <laughs> but supposing we sent this cookie off to the top scientists in the world, they'd be able to tell you possibly what ingredients were put into this cookie. They'd probably be able to maybe calculate when this cookie was made. They might, even be tell, uh, they might even be able to tell you when and, and perhaps even where it was made. But they wouldn't be able to tell you who made it and why it was made. And actually, the answer to that question is Kinsley and my mother-in-law made it. And it was Landon was in school and Mel was watching Kinsley for the day and it was something to do. But I wanted to take this cookie because... It just reminded me that only the creator can tell you why it was made and who made it. So that's the difference between science and faith. Science is very important because it deals with the scientific questions, but equally, faith is really important because it answers some very fundamental questions about life. And everyone has faith. An atheist has faith that there's no God. 
You can't prove that mathematically or scientifically. And those of us who believe in Jesus do so on the basis of evidence. So as I mentioned, I couldn't merely be a Christian if it was this blind leap of faith. If there was no evidence at all. If, if it was just, you just have to believe it because that's what you've been told. I believe there's actually good historical evidence for Christianity. And historical evidence is evidence. Scientific evidence is not the only kind of evidence. A lawyer uses what you might, use, what you might call as historical evidence. Every time a jury brings a verdict back, they're relying on evidence from history, historical evidence. And every jury decision is a step of faith. And so it's that we have faith to make up our minds about Jesus. That's a step of faith. So I came to believe in God, not because of my family, but because of Jesus. And it seems to me that the resurrection of Jesus, which I also came to believe, and we'll come back to this, but it strongly suggests that this world has a creator and that that creator is to be seen in terms of, through the lens of Jesus. And to me, it, it makes a lot of sense. You, you can't get to know someone unless they reveal themselves to you. No one can get to know you unless you reveal yourself. And if there is a God, and he wanted to reveal himself to us, what would be the best way to do that? It seems to be logical that he would reveal himself in a way that we can understand, in a human being just like us. So what's the evidence First of all, what is the evidence that Jesus even existed? Some people say, well, you know, maybe Jesus didn't exist. But there's overwhelming historical evidence. No serious historian would ever suggest that Jesus didn't exist. To help me explain, I'm going to show a clip from the Alpha video, uh, which can uh, help us look at some sources from outside of the New Testament that Jesus existed. Jesus of Nazareth is believed to have walked these streets around 2,000 years ago. But is there any evidence that he even existed? Well, there's actually quite a lot of evidence. No serious historian would deny that Jesus existed. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius wrote about Jesus, as did the first century Jewish historian Josephus. He described him as Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And then he goes on to describe his crucifixion and alleged resurrection. So there's evidence outside of the New Testament for the existence of Jesus, but most of the evidence comes from within inside the New Testament. And sometimes people say, well, the New Testament was written such a long time ago. How do we know what was written down hasn't been changed over the years? Well, the answer is that we do know because of a science called textual criticism. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. 
Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous history of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. Professor F.J.A. Hort, one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism, concluded that, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. And no secular historian would disagree with that conclusion. So we know from evidence outside and inside the New Testament that Jesus existed. But who was he? Well, we know that he was fully human. He had a human body. He ate, he drank, he sweated, he got tired, he suffered pain. And he had human emotions, love, joy, sadness, and human experiences. He had the experience of growing up in a family, of education, of having a job, of being tempted. And he experienced bereavement and suffering and torture and even death. Many today will say, okay, he was a human being, but only a human being. Maybe he was a great religious teacher, but no more than that. Others would say he was much more than that. Bono, the lead singer of the band U2, has said, I don't think you're led off easily by saying he was a great thinker or philosopher, because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God, or he was nuts. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for nearly 2,000 years, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I don't believe it. He went on to say, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I thought that was a much better way of presenting it rather than me trying to share that information. But there's two parts to the argument. So the first part of the argument is what did Jesus think about himself? Because if Jesus didn't think he was God, that's kind of the end of the argument. And even if he did, the second part of the argument is, was he right? 
And there's handouts on your tables, and uh, you can actually, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, you can follow along with some of the points, and uh, this takes us to talking point one, which is, what did Jesus say about himself? I had told Trevor earlier, too, I've put a lot of scriptures on the screen that we're just going to fly through, but they're also in your handouts that you guys are free to take home. So what did Jesus say about himself? The first bit of evidence here is that Jesus' teaching was centered on himself. Great religious teachers point away from themselves. I'm not up here to say, look at me. Look to God. But Jesus, who personified humility, said, look at me. Come to me. This question of ultimate meaning and purpose, what is our life about? This sort of sense of what you might call a spiritual hunger, the sense that other things don't quite satisfy. However good these things are, there's always this slight void, this sense that something's missing. John 6, 35 says, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you want that hunger satisfied, come to me. John 8, 36, there's stuff in our lives that we don't like. I have stuff in my life that I don't like. I have things, habits that I find quite addictive. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, if Jesus, he was saying, if I set you free, you really will be free. And then there's all this stuff we carry around, worry, anxiety, fear, guilt. And Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. If you want peace, peace of mind, come to me, he said. If you receive me, you receive God. If you welcome me, you welcome God. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen God. Which brings me to a story of a little child who was drawing a picture of God in class one time. And the teacher said, what are you doing? And the child said, I'm drawing a picture of God. She said, what do you mean? You can't draw a picture of God. Nobody knows what God looks like. She said, well, they will in a minute. <laughs> Jesus says, if you want to know what God looks like, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And then there were Jesus' indirect claims. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. He went up to people and said, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, if someone offends you, you can forgive them. But you can't go up to some random person and say, you're forgiven. When Jesus did that, the lawyer said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Forgiveness is at the heart of what Jesus came to do, to, to make forgiveness possible. It's at the heart of Christianity. C.S. Lewis says, a Christian is someone who forgives the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. And then there were Jesus' direct claims. There's so many of them. And I know we don't have time to look at them all, but I'd love us to look at this one. John 10, 30 to 33. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. A claim tantamount to a claim to be God was blasphemy in the eyes of the people at the time. And they picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus says, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere human being, claim to be God. 
I think if you look at all the evidence, it's clear that Jesus did make the claim that he was God. It's an astonishing claim, but of course, a claim like that needs to be tested. And if you think about it, there are only three possibilities. One, it wasn't true, and Jesus knew perfectly well that it wasn't true, in which case he was a fraudster. Second possibility is that it wasn't true, and he just simply didn't realize it wasn't true, in which way Bono would be right, that he would be a nutter. He'd be deluded. He'd be considered insane. But logically, there's only really one other possibility, and that's simply that it is true. So C.S. Lewis, again, one of the intellectual giants of the 20th century and probably best known for the Chronicles of Narnia, said this, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else insane and something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Those are pretty powerful words. Which brings us to talking point two. What evidence is there to support his claims? The second part of the argument. Was he right in what he said about himself? What, what's the evidence to support his claims? Well, the first part of evidence that we have is his teachings. The teaching of Jesus is widely acknowledged to be the greatest teaching of all time. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to other people as you would have them do to you. And then this totally revolutionary, the first person to say this, love your enemies. Jesus' teaching has been the foundation of our entire civilization in the West. Many of our laws were originally founded on the teaching of Jesus. And we've advanced in every field of science and technology. Think how much we've advanced in the last 10 years in science and technology. Yet in 2,000 years, no one has ever improved on the moral teaching of Jesus. They're the greatest words ever spoken. They're the kind of words you'd expect God to speak. So the first piece of evidence is his teaching, and secondly, his life, what he did. Most people think Christianity is boring, and the way we sometimes talk about it or portray Jesus, you would think so too. You would think that Jesus was actually the guy who would go to the party and turn wine into water, but he was the guy going to the party, and when they had run out of wine, Go get those jars, fill them with bath water, start pouring it for the guests. And they started pouring out fresh wine. Not just his miracles, but his love for the marginalized. Feeding the hungry, healing the sick, and ultimately laying down his life for us. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And then his character has impressed millions of people who wouldn't even call themselves Christians. Time magazine described Jesus as the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of humanity. His enemies couldn't find fault. 
His friends who knew him really well said, this guy's without sin. And I often think the real test of character is when you're under pressure. And when Jesus was being tortured, he said this about his torturers, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then his fulfillment of prophecy. No one else in the history of the world has had a whole collection of books written about them before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies, 29 of them in a single day. Well, you might say maybe he got a hold of the Old Testament, he read all these prophecies and thought, right, I better go around and start fulfilling these. But the problem about that is the sheer number of them. And humanly speaking, he had no control over them. The exact manner of his death was prophesied, the place of his burial, his resurrection, even the place of his birth was prophesied. So if he's going through reading, being like, oh, I'm supposed to be born in Bethlehem, it's too late by that point. But then you have the conquest of death. And this is the cornerstone of Christianity. It's so relevant to every single person here because statistically speaking, one in one die. There was a headline in The Onion, a satirical magazine, which read, world death rate holding steady at 100%. And that's the reality. So I have one more clip to show you. Most of the dead. That's what I was taught. I'm not, I, I don't know. I can't say yes or no. Yes, I do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. As a man of science, I think that's pretty impossible. <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. I definitely don't think that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think he did. <laughs> no, Jesus did not did not come back from the dead. That's ridiculous. Well, it could be used as a metaphor, right? Could have been a, a drug trip. Yeah, of course he did. I do believe in that, 100%. Just the relationship that I have with him is proof enough. I'm not sure. I haven't looked that up. Um, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Jesus rise from the dead. So you know, the Victorians used to talk a lot about death, but they never talked about sex. In our culture, we talk a lot about sex, but we don't talk about death. It's kind of just something you don't mention. And even in hospitals now, they're trying to avoid talking about death. And there's actually one hospital that... I came across that said, you must never use the word death. And they had a politically correct way of describing it. And I couldn't believe it when I read it. Negative patient care outcome. That was their description for death. But people die nevertheless. And when you go to a funeral and the coffin goes into the ground, it looks absolutely final. And it is. Unless death has been conquered. Unless when Jesus died and was buried, he was raised to life. If he was, then there's hope beyond this life. But is it just wishful thinking? It is, unless there's evidence. So what evidence is there for the resurrection of Jesus? And first of all, his absence from the tomb. No one has ever satisfactorily explained why Jesus' body was not there that first Easter day. People have come up with all sorts of explanations the the, that the authorities stole the body? Well, in that case, why didn't they produce it when everyone was saying that Jesus had been seen? They couldn't. 
And I find this piece of evidence fascinating, that when the disciples heard that Jesus had been raised from the dead, they ran to the tomb, and when they got there, they looked in, and what they found was the grave clothes of Jesus were still there. The only valuable thing for a robber to steal was still there. And they'd, they'd collapsed like a caterpillar's cocoon when the butterfly has vanished. And the piece that had been around his head had been folded up and put in another place. And it says when they saw that, they believed. So not only his absence from the tomb, but his presence with the disciples. Jesus was seen on several occasions. On one occasion by more than 500 people. That's probably the number of people. And lost my train of thought. <laughs> But some people say that it's, it's hallucinations. There have never been hallucinations among that large of a group of people. Sure, there could be drug trips, there could be this and that, but all saw him on the same occasion. So people who say hallucination, it doesn't occur among large groups. The disciples don't even fit any of those categories. They were cynics like Thomas. They were, they were tough fishermen. They were tax collectors. But then there was the transformation of the disciples. Because here was a group of people, depressed, disillusioned, and suddenly they're going around saying, we've seen Jesus. He's really alive. And most of the disciples died pretty horrific deaths as a result. They were crucified, they were beheaded, they were tortured. And all they had to say was, no, no, no. It's actually not true. We didn't see him. If they said that, it would have ended. But they didn't. Those people wouldn't have died for something that they would have known was true or was not true. But they knew it was true because they'd seen the risen Jesus. And as a result of this move, movement, and it's a movement without precedent in the history of the world, swept the whole world, and it has no parallel. It's still happening. There are 2,300 million Christians in the world today of every ethnicity, every continent, every nationality, every economic, social, and intellectual background. They all speak of this encounter with the risen Jesus. So when we look at what Jesus claimed about himself, the first part of the argument, it's clear that Jesus did claim to be a man whose identity was God. Was he deluded? Was he a fraud? When you look at, or when I look at the evidence of his teaching, the things he did, his character, his fulfillment of prophecy, his resurrection, it seems to me absurd, illogical, unbelievable to say he was insane or a fraud. On the other hand, it provides the strongest possible supporting evidence that what Jesus said about himself was true. And how I came to the conclusion it's true is because it's one thing to believe up here, but it's another thing to believe here. And it wasn't just about knowing something anymore. It was about encountering something. I basically, that night bringing in 2007, said, okay, yes, I'll, I'll follow you. 
And at that moment, I experienced in my heart a real encounter with Jesus, which changed my life in a radical way. I've experienced firsthand Jesus' words, I've come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. And that's what I've experienced for the last 12 years. So of course, it's not always easy. There's ups and downs, and I mess up. But I found that it really is true. Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Jesus really did rise from the dead. There really is hope beyond this life. There really is hope for this life. And this encounter totally changed my life. So what did you think or feel about the talk? What makes you happy? Uh, what do you think about Jesus? And if you had a chance to meet Jesus, how would you feel and what would you say to him? Uh, I've put questions five and six up as well. Before you heard the talk tonight, what was your concept of Jesus? Has it changed? If so, in what way? And what aspects of the evidence presented tonight did you find convincing or not convincing?